Welcome to the Top Gear Magazine podcast, a peek behind the curtain of what it's really like to drive other people's cars for a living. These are the stories behind the stories. Hello, I'm Jack Ricks, Top Gear Magazine's editor, joined as ever, by Rowan Horncastle, TG's head of content. And this episode, we're talking about Audi's electric assault on the Dakar rally, Gordon Murray calling the 911 GT3's engine delicious, and how long until your car can drive you back from the pub. But first, Rowan, what have you been thinking about? I've been thinking about the new 2022 F1 regulations. Hmm. Because have you seen the cars? Yeah, yeah, I've seen them, yeah. Pretty wild, you know, it's meant to make racing closer. But there's one aspect that when these cars have been testing has caught my eye, and that is the rear wing and DRS. Mm. Seen that? Keep going. Well, I've I've seen it, The slot. So the the, the wing's now bigger, taller, a bit more kind of bow tie-ish. They look way better, yeah. Yeah, cooler, no end plates. But the way the DRS slot opens and closes is fascinating. It's so, it's like a guillotine. Where are you going with this? Well, I was wondering, what root vegetables could you cut with it? Imagine it's doing 200 miles an hour down the street, shut it. Do you think it will do a potato? Courgette, easy. Pepperami. I know it's not a root vegetable, but it would definitely (laughs) cut one of those. It says a lot about your diet, Rowan, if you think a pepperami is a root vegetable. (laughs) Um, I think you're right. I think a courgette all day, uh, cucumber, zero problem. Um, I think where you get into issues is, yeah, as you say, root vegetables, carrots, turnips, um, anything else? No, but I was just thinking because I was watching those. You must have watched it. You know those hydraulic press videos on YouTube. Oh, I saw a tooth in one the other day. Six hundred twenty kilograms a tooth could do, and then it disintegrates. Yeah. Anyway, what could a DRS do? Anyway, that's a. I need to probably ask Adrian New or something. But <laughs> you def- I was also thinking. Imagine if a bird tried could fly through at the same time, but then you should hit the brakes and you don't want to think about that. This is a video we need to get on. On TopGear.com, don't we? Yeah. Anyway, anything to think about. Anyway, what would you like to, to, to talk about today? Well, weirdly, I've been thinking about the exact... No, I, I haven't oh. at all. I've been thinking about Gordon Murray's T33 because, not to blow my own trumpet, but I went to see Gordon. I've actually been spending more time with Gordon Murray recently than I have with my own wife because... It's quite worrying. It is a bit worrying. It is. But, but look, he keeps doing interesting things um, and inviting us along, which is lovely. So the T50 reveal, um, of course. We've been to Dunsfold to see his own personal lightweight car collection, which was spectacular. Um, we came along. Ollie Q did that one, actually, to spec um, a T50 to have that full customer experience of what it's like to to see a T50 being built and spec it up. And now he's invited us along. He invited us along to um, to see the T33, which is their second mid-engine V12 supercar. Yeah, they're knocking these cars out, considering <laughs> it's a small, you know, a small company that's kind of popped out of nowhere. And just to give you some insight, the... Uh, the, the, the GMA facility is in spitting distance from the start line of, uh, of of the Top Gear track at Dunsfold. Yeah. But they've recently moved, haven't they? That's where you did yeah, the Yeah, new... so they haven't fully moved in yet, but they bought a new premises, Windlesham, Surrey, so it's not massively far up the road, but they're going to turn this into, you know, this enormous tech campus. They're going to have a little test track there for running in the cars. It's going to be quite spectacular. It's not finished yet, so we were invited along to see the T33 in the underground car park. So it was quite cool. You sort of rolled in. There was all kind of Gordon's cars and various experiments under covers in this car park. And then you you walk through this door and there was the T33 in this sort of perfectly whited out um, underground car park. And 
I suppose what I wanted to talk about was just the experience of it. Normally, if you go, uh, you know, you get an invite from a car company to go and see a new car, it's quite regimented. It's quite a strict itinerary. You may get access to the CEO or to some top execs, but it will be, you know... For a slot. For a slot, exactly. Yeah. A 10, 15-minute slot. And, the, and anyway, we arrive and, and there's Gordon. He's just wandered down. It's not even time for us to talk to him yet. He's just sort of checking we're all right. Got into the car park, okay. We have a little informal chat about the car. And that's what's so brilliant is this, this kind of personal experience. He tells me, by the way, everyone that's bought a T50 and has bought a T33, he personally specs the car with them. It's just insane. That Do they get a Hawaiian T-shirt as well? Or a Hawaiian shirt to go with it? On request. Very Gordon. Oh, right. On request, yeah. Um, Floral, paisley pattern, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, he'll do Weirdly, it actually, he wasn't wearing a Hawaiian shirt for this particular encounter. Really? But it was quite nippy. Uh, so I don't blame him. He he was wrapped up a bit more. But but the great thing, so so there's the T33 over there. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute, Gordon. He says to me, Jack, do you want to, uh, do you want to see what's just arrived in the post? When Gordon Murray says that to you, 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 you tend to go and have a look. Screwfix catalogue. Screwfix. Oh, God's catalogue. <laughs> no, it's a, a big crate that just arrived from America. Anyway, he opens it up, and in there is the um, flat 12 Alpha engine that was in the Brabham BT46. Um, gorgeous looking thing. It's all like in perfect condition. Apparently, there's only three of them in the entire world, and he's bought one. Uh, and I sort of say, oh, it's, a, it's amazing. Well done you for tracking it. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I'm not sure yet. Don't know. Um, That's a drunk eBay purchase of the yeah. finest order. Oh, God. Gordon on the special brood, he's like, oh, let, I'm just going to browse the Ebays. Oh, yeah, and yeah. then he's oh, that's f- that's a familiar cylinder. And the uh, cylinder count and head, oh. That's my engine. <clears throat> I'm going to have that one. Yes. So he had, he, he did, and then casually said, well, actually, I may build, you know, a, a, a good as new version of the Brabham BT46 using the original plans from scratch, as you do, just as a sort of weekend hobby. Gordon's a busy boy. I'm still getting my head around the T50, if I'm honest. But yeah, yeah. enlighten me to the T33, because what was your initial reaction? Because mine was, uh, it looks a bit like a Zagato MR2. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No, no, no. I, I agree. I, I, we saw pictures of it before we saw it for real. And uh, initial reaction was I didn't like it. I didn't like it. It felt sort of weirdly retro, but not in a kind of, I, I don't know. It just felt sort of needlessly retro. Anyway, long story short, when I saw it for real actually made a lot more sense. I don't know what my eyes were doing the day I saw the pictures, but, but but I promise you, it basically looked like a different car when I saw it. Really sort of simple, elegant. You know, the T50, he tried to do the, the, the same thing, this kind of smooth surfaces. You've got the big fan at the back providing the downforce. This is a similar kind of thing. But because you've got two seats instead of the three-seater layout and the T50, you can get more shape in the waist. So it's got a bit more of a kind of Coke bottle shape, um, just just has just nicer angles on it. It's, it's kind of elegant. He talks about it, you know, bringing back beauty to supercar design, but he would say that. But it is, look, it's a good-looking thing. Some people think it's a bit anonymous to look at. Others think it's elegance. It's, is it small? It's small. It's like, yeah, the footprint is, it's kind of Porsche Boxster in terms of footprint on the road. I mean, again, this is a car that we need to get out on the road. We need to park it next to, you know, four Fiestas and stuff and really get an appreciation of it. But that's enough about design because really what you're buying with Gordon Murray's car, it's like a very expensive Swiss watch, isn't it? You know, it tells the time, it goes around your wrist, but you're buying that absolutely amazing movement inside. And it's the V12 engine that's just, is That's the thing, because it's got a you know a, a boxed Cayman footprint, 
Last time I checked, it may have changed, but I'm pretty sure they didn't come with a massively high revving V12. In them. No, yeah. no. <laughs> Which this does, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So it's it's 100 kilograms heavier than the uh, than the T50. So he's kind of pitching it as a bit more of a usable car. Um, but look, it's only 1,100 kilograms. Um, the engine is essentially largely the same as the one in the T50. So 3.9 litre V12 naturally aspirated. T50 revs to 12,000. This revs to 11,000. It has 50 horsepower less, but you've still got over 600 horsepower in something that weighs the same as an Alpine A110. I, I, I can't get my head around it. But did, you chatted to Gordon about it, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, actually, let's stop wittering on about this. Let, let, let's play a clip of Gordon talking about the engine in the T33. And I love this one because he they got in a, a, a latest 911 GT3 to as a benchmark just to test that engine against this one here's here's gordon on the gt3 engine and the t33 engine so if you're a cynic <laughs> you might just say try, you've taken the try t me <laughs> you've, oh, I'll try. you've taken the t50s v12 and detuned it so as not to step on the t50s toes but i imagine a lot more has gone into it than that absolutely yeah the the, the one word you've got wrong there is detuned okay. we've, we've retuned it mm -hmm. and and with a lot of it is 50 funnily enough yep. because we as we said earlier we've promised everybody that that would be the halo car and to be honest 12,000 revs with a four liter v12 is a bit on the limit you know it really is and and i i pushed cosworth to do 12,000 revs 11,000 is a lot more sensible but it also gives uh it gave them the opportunity and us the opportunity to look at retuning the engine to be even more drivable not that the t50 isn't i mean I, now that i've driven it several times with that weight of motor car it's got ridiculous low down torque you know um, but we've we've taken that to another level on this it's got different cylinder heads, different cams, of course, obviously different mapping for the valve timing, completely different induction system, and a very different exhaust system, and even a different engine mounting system, so the engines aren't interchangeable. So this gives, believe it or not, this gives 75% of max torque at 2.5, but more importantly, it gives 90% of max torque from 4.5 to 10.5 which is ridiculous for an engine that revs to 11,000 <laughs> and is still over 600 horsepower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow. And, and, and as you, you, you were telling me a story earlier, actually, about driving around Millbrook, I think, in, in fifth gear. Right? Yeah. So just, yeah, it's, it's a lovely demonstration of the torque. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's, 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 it's quite amazing, actually. And, and what was demonstrating the torque capacity of the, of the T50 was the fact that we, we, and the test drivers and myself, we got out of 50 and somebody had borrowed uh, the latest GT3 911. And below five, it felt like a hot hatch. You know, it just, it, from six to nine, it's the, that engine is delicious. You know, it's the sound and the pull, it's, it just goes on and on to 9,000. But below five is just nothing, you know, absolutely nothing. And I just jumped out of 50, um, which pulls from 2,000 revs. Good engines there. Good engines. Very good engines. And I, that T50 engine, it's something else because it is basically just to trump every other naturally aspirated engine ever. And, you know, using a GT3 engine as a comparison isn't a bad place to start, you know. No. Uh, yeah, I think, what did, what did he say there? Hot hatch pace, you know, and then it really picks up 
the um, the GT3 engine. I mean, it's going to be just insane. I mean, the only thing that can possibly get close to it is the Valkyrie's 6.5 litre V12, if they can get that thing working, also built by Cosworth. But Gordon's got more revs to play with as well, just as a bit of a... Yeah. But also, you know, we have to kind of tip our hat towards GMA, how quickly that they're managing to sort the development and production of this car out when it was at the Goodwood last year running around. And we know that Aston are having issues with the Valkyrie yep. to try and get it finished. You know, Aston's chips could get a bit soggy because uh, Gordon may have taken a little tinkle on them uh, exactly. with how he's, he's, he's I mean, the impression this out. You, the, exactly. The impression you get is that... This is a very small, very nimble company. You basically got Gordon calling the calling the engineering shots, and then a very small, very talented team underneath him who can just action stuff straight away. So, mm. you know, the only delays they've had really in developing T fifty and as they get into T thirty was uh, travel restrictions with COVID. You know, they need to get the car to the four corners of the world to test it, and they couldn't, so they had to sort of sit on it for a bit. But, you know, all our intel says the car should be finished. It should be ready to go. Customers should be getting their cars. Middle of the year. Which gives customer confidence when you're spending literally millions of pounds yeah, on it that yeah. you want to know it's coming down the line. Oh, by so, the way, the, the T33, uh, total bargain. Yeah. What's the, yeah. 1.4. Oh! Million. Chump change. Yeah, 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 easy, yeah, yeah easy. Compared to the T50. So it's uh, pretty pretty much a bargain. But honestly, the, the, the noise this car makes, we've seen Dario Franchitti testing it there's there's some some good videos on youtube of him screaming this thing up to 12,000 rpm in the t50 one of the best noises you've ever it's, heard I, I haven't heard it with my own ears yet but it's i don't think they're dubbing anything over the top of it currently <laughs> but you know lfa's carrera gt's yeah bigger american v8s mm-hmm. that's you know they're all good noises i think we can put this into the box of good noise but yeah, um it's going to be up there isn't it um and uh, final question then would you have the T33 or the T50? T50. T50. Really? T50. Yeah. I asked I asked Gordon the same question. You can see it in the video. Because th- there's a quote in the press release from Gordon himself saying, T33, the all-round supercar, the only car you'll ever need to drive. And I sort of quoted it back at him and said, so you'd have a T33? He's like, nah, 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 I'd have a T50. Yeah, and it's not because I can carry more mates in it. I haven't got any mates. No, it's just two <laughs> extra things I can throw crap on for a longer road trip, so it's fine. Yeah, bit more power, bit more revs. You've got the fan to play with. Yeah, central seat position. Yeah, no, yeah. got that leaf blower on the black. That's going to be useful in, in winter anyway. But anyway, that's the T33, but Gordon Murray, a very intelligent, very clever man. He is, yes. I know one of those as well. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. He is the one and only Paul Horrell. Do you want to have a chat with him? Throw a question his way? Come on. Let's get Horrell on. Let's tease him. Let's tease him. Hello, Paul. Are you there? I'm here. Yeah, I'm here and nervous. Good. Uh, well, I was going to say, how are you? Nervous. That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't need to expose my ignorance. All right. Well, just a quick recap then that Paul's got 60 seconds to talk about a very complicated subject. This is entirely blind. He has no heads up on what we're about to give him. So please bear that in mind as the great man himself gives us 60 seconds on row. I'd like to know, and with the audience, I'm sure what the five levels of autonomy are and when we'll see them. And your time starts now. 
Okay. Uh, essentially, you can uh, summarize these things as what you have on and what you have off. So uh, level one autonomy is feet off. It's it's cruise control. Uh, level two autonomy is sort of hands off. Um, it's where you have these cruise controls that kind of guide the steering wheel. Um, level three is what they call uh, eyes off. So you're actually allowed to look away from the road. Um, level four, I think, is mind off. Um, where you can you can you can basically switch off, read the paper, go to sleep, whatever, and the, the car will give you several minutes, and it will steer all over the place, possibly within a geographical area like you know the greater Las Vegas area or something like that. And level five is well, I guess, kind of heart, mind, and soul off. You can just leave the car, and it goes and does its own thing. Um, now, uh, at level four autonomy. A lot of people have said it's coming soon. I'm afraid they're kind of talking out of their jacksies. Um, it's it's been promised us... That's 60 many... seconds. There we are. That was my timer going off. That's your 60 seconds. <laughs> you got your own one. That is how seriously Paul Hole takes this challenge. He's timed himself. Um, that was brilliant. You absolutely rattled through those five levels of autonomy. Um, I, I don't think I would have been able to do any of them, to be honest. No, but okay, so when am I going to be, I, I like this, was it mind, body and soul off? Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, you cool. haven't got a soul row in it, it doesn't matter. But, more, but let's put that into context for our, for our readers, Paul. When can we drive to the pub in our car, um, have too many pints and then the car drives us home? I honestly think, I mean, depending where you live, but I honestly think if you live in, as I say, Arizona, Las Vegas uh, or, or, or Los Angeles or somewhere that's kind of quite simple to drive in with respect, you know, all respect to the Americans, it's quite simple. Um, <laughs> maybe 20, you know, 2026, 2027, maybe. If you live in London or Naples or, I mean, just like no chance. Forget well, it. Well, that, that seals just, it. I'm moving to Los Angeles. Or Las Vegas. Las Vegas is more your style. <laughs> well, sort of cheap and sort of shallow. Uh, yeah, yeah glittery. No glittery. Oh, I sorry, think is what shiny. Yeah, yeah. Sparkly. Anyway, Paul. Paul, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, that felt like uh, almost too comfortable for you. Yeah, I think we yeah. need to uh, up the difficulty for the next one. Well, then you just divide it. Obviously, I just I just knew to give it twelve seconds on each one of the levels. <laughs> oh, that's quick mass. Yeah, quick mass. All right, great to see you, Paul. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Paul. And yeah, Bye. It's been a pleasure as always. Bye. Bye. Right, that was Paul Horrell. How's your brain, Jack? Mine's exploded. Itchy. Itchy, itchy, itchy brain. <laughs> well, let's scratch it with something else because in the issue, secondhand cars Ooh, issue, plenty of stuff. Uh, the Smith Aletha, do you know much about that? No, that's the, the BMW-based thing that looks a bit like a Z8, but it's actually based on a Z4. Yeah, Z8 Coupe, gorgeous thing. Two brothers, engineers came from Tesla, NASA, put it together in their garage. Fantastic thing. We've got the winter weapons test. Oh, yes. Lambo SVJ. Typical winter weapon car, M3, Porsche, RS3, all together. And then obviously all the secondhand cars that you'd want to buy, details from every market, every price point. But there's also a story, considering we've been in the midwinter, of someone going very hot to see some desert racing. Ah, the Dakar. The Dakar. This is Ollie Marriage's trip to the Dakar, right? You've got a bit of experience with the Dakar yourself, haven't you, Rowan? I have, well... Not when it was in Dakar, because it does it has moved around the world quite a lot, but I went to the one in South America when Peugeot did it. Mm -hmm. They didn't do too well. But there's a new <laughs> competitor, Audi. Wait, 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 wait. Before we get onto the new one, 
You also had a second experience at Dakar, didn't you? Was this Morocco? This was testing Test, in Morocco. Testing, yeah. yeah. That was dangerous. That was literally testing for mind, body, and soul for me. Uh, I nearly died twice in two different environments, but there's a whole podcast on that. But Oli Marriage went to Saudi Arabia, to the latest iteration of the Dakar, to give us a bit of behind the scenes because it's a kind of motorsport that... You know, everyone knows the name, but it's it's not really covered that much. And all went there to see the new Audi car, um, yes. which is interesting in itself, mm-hmm. and to get behind the scenes. So, let's speak to all. Let's bring Ollie in. Ollie, are you there? Hey, folks, how are you doing? Yes, very well, thank you. So, the Dakar experience. Have you been before, or was this your first time? I have no, like Rowan. I, I also went 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 to it when it was out in Argentina, out in South America, oh, yeah. and been lucky enough to do some testing with a couple of the teams in Morocco over the years as well. So yeah, old hands slightly. But the big draw this year was obviously Audi has committed to it. Um, it it's uh, and it's a bit mad. They've gone mad on the tech, uh, and they're making a bit of noise around the Dakar again. So they do. Tell us, um, you know, how the sort of opportunity came around. Well, I mean, the I mean, I, th- I think it's the the car really is just astonishing. So, how do you describe it as the most complicated racing car they've ever developed? And not only is it massively complicated, they've done it in a really compressed timescale. They built the whole thing or developed the whole thing in eighteen months, less than eighteen months from start to finish. So it's this mad electric. It's all electric driven, but uses a two-litre turbocharged DTM race engine as a range extender. So, and then it's got Formula E motors that drive each axle. As you do. It's it's this mad mashup of circuit tech then taken out into the desert and used for the most extreme and (laughs) rough, tough and hostile motorsport there is. So actually it's using technology that they had already developed for other race cars, but just in this kind of Frankenstein fashion that that no one was really expecting that's that's exactly it and it's i mean the thing with dakar is that you never go out there and win first time round because it's such a tough event and this was not only their first audi's first dakar it was their first it was this car's first ever race it had never done any race it just tested before so it was right into the deep end so they were really happy because they got four stage wins over the course of the whole event i think which is more than they hope to do. So they, as proof of concept, they've, they've proved that it's fast and they've they found out where the weaknesses are. They know they're a bit overweight. They've got a two-ton weight limit, but at the moment they're about 2,150 kilos, so they're a little bit over that. So they can take some weight out for next year. They can improve the reliability of a couple of things. They had a couple of issues with the dampers this year. But on the whole, it was just this, it's just, it's the event. The event is just mad and bonkers and brilliant and beautiful in its own way as well so it's the scale that's the mad thing just just i assume for the car because range anxiety is a big thing you have with evs and and audi don't want to say this it's it's an electric car but it's not an electric car in the traditional sense of it's got got a 50 50 kilowatt hour battery which wouldn't get you what 50 100 miles if it was only battery no exactly it's incredible that they've developed this thing that can cover yeah, the entire so it's stage. Got, I mean, it's got the, the 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 deal is it's just a more efficient way of getting across the desert than a pure petrol engine. So the pure petrol cars have got five hundred, even eight hundred liter tanks. This has got a three hundred liter tank. So the DTM engine can run at constant rev. So in its sweet spot, being as efficient as you like, and all it does 
is it has a third electric motor. So the DTM engine drives an electric motor that charges the battery. And that's all that motor does. And then the other two motors just draw draw all the energy they need from the battery pack. So it's quite a, it's quite a, it's just a more efficient way of going racing. Tell us a bit about how you actually spectate out there, because you know these cars are flashing past you, um, and they're gone. So how do you position yourself? How do you get out to the juicy bits where the action is? Tell us about that. It's next to impossible. It's really, really difficult because you don't <laughs> know where the race goes. Because all they'll do is, is because it's a pure navigational rally. That all they the co-drivers have a have a road a road book. And they have directions and they have GPS coordinates they have to hit. So they have to just navigate themselves through the desert going, right, the the coordinates say we have to head at 260 degrees for 15 or 20 kilometres and then you'll hit a beacon. Then your light in the car goes green and you can aim for the next one. So they, and those are only given to them the morning. I think maybe it's the evening before the next day stage. So, and you don't know how to interpret this. So you have to sort of (laughs) go, you know where the start points are and the finish point are for each stage. And you sort of have to track back up. So we go to the finish point and try and work out from where the locals were going and where other people were driving, where the route was likely to come through. And then you'd basically stand on the top of the highest point you could and wait for the first car to come through and go, I can hear it. It's, I think it's, over that side so the first first point we chose the guy said really reliably they'll be coming from that way and they'll be coming through here and then someone else went no 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 no. they'll be coming from that way and they'll be coming through there and going over there and then of course they didn't they came from behind us and went in a completely (laughs) different direction so you've just got no idea and quite often you've got once one person sets the route the others will follow it because it's just they know that that route works so you just basically you just drive into the middle of nowhere and wait for some noise to happen and then hope you see some cars. But also pray you don't get hit as well, because, you know, they're doing a 400 kilometer stage in their pace notes. Isn't a sunburnt Brit <laughs> at the top of this June. Yes. Watch out for that one. In his deck chair. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. no. Um, but also the scale is mental to get across. Mm. And the only way to cover it is to an expensive helicopter and uh, and do yeah. it. But <laughs> Ollie... top, top gear expenses don't quite stretch to helicopters, unfortunately. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Be a good way of getting around. But the, oh, speak to us because, you know, is it a different part of the world in Saudi Arabia? How did the locals react to it? Because when it was in South America and in Africa, everyone would come mm. out and see it. And, you know, did, what was the spectating like? And... What cars did they bring? Because it is in the middle of nowhere, so it has to be quite accessible. Yeah, it's it's pretty bonkers. It's there's the the locals really buy into it as an event. They love it, but it's and you get but it's quite loose. The whole event is quite <laughs> wild. So there's because there's no marshals or anything. So and you know understanding what the motorsport is and how dangerous it is, and that they're trying to that the, the competitors are trying to race at the same time as the locals are basically driving the wrong way up the course or just stopping in terrible places it's quite it's there's a little bit of education required i think that it doesn't quite gel and also yeah there's this that slight uneasiness i think of 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 taking a motorsport to a to a place that has it has a more controversial aspect to it 
Yeah. And just a, just a quick word then on the bivouac, because I was reading your feature and the scale of this thing, it's kind of unlike anything else on Earth. So 3,000 people, 1,400 vehicles, a 50-acre site, and apparently they can pack up and go in three hours. I just, my mind can't yeah. even imagine the logistics involved in that. I know, it's, a, it's an astonishing thing, but it's basically a whacking great travelling circus that every... Well, usually in South America, it was like every day they moved it. In in they've had they had six bivouacs across two weeks in Saudi in Saudi Arabia, and the whole thing is organised by a bloke called Christophe Pujinier, and his job is it's unbelievable. He has to marshal ships, aeroplanes, helicopters, a hundred trucks, I think it is, five hundred staff, and they have to pack this all the event down and transport it to a new bivouac to establish it because they serve i think it's they serve like a hundred thousand meals a hundred and forty thousand meals over the course of two weeks because they feed how was the food everyone it was good it was, good. It was a little <laughs> bit aer- little bit aeroplane food i like aeroplane food um, no it's actually not bad no but oh, the coolest thing well i found the coolest thing at the dakar is just the kind of disparate array of things racing and you've got you know a bloke I was say the classic dakar is what caught my eye this year yeah, yeah. but then you've got the camas yeah. trucks you've got the bikes you've got the quads you've got the side by sides mm. then you've got the top boys you know the brx yeah. hunter the the audi the hilux what what caught your eye was a bit of a surprise to you so two two things i think are worth worth mentioning the camas trucks are absolutely one of them because if you think mercedes and formula one is dominant <laughs> Camas trucks have won the Dakar for the last 18 years on the bounce. And they've not only that, I think this year they won every single stage. So they win every stage. I mean, they're like McLaren in their peak. They're utterly, utterly dominant. So those trucks are incredible to watch. So if you're in the desert and you see all the fast you know, buggies and things go by, don't leave. Wait for the trucks because the trucks are the real spectacle. And then, yeah, in the in the bivouac, they two years ago they introduced Dakar Classic, and it has gone wild on them. It's now so popular, so it basically it's an excuse for every every Frenchman who raced twenty or thirty years ago, forty years ago, to bring out his old race car, dust it off, and have another go. So they've got everything out there. From you know, there was a guy out there competing in a two hundred five T sixteen, one of the original Group B cars that competed in the Dakar back in the mid-80s. There was all sorts. Citroen CX, there was one of those floating around. There was Mitsubishi Pajeros, all this old stuff. And it was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. As an event, it just so cool. Wasn't there a, uh, wasn't there a slant nose 911 with a V8 in the back or something bizarre? Yeah, that, that wasn't taking part, but it was sort of just arrived in the <laughs> Surprisingly, paddock. It's yeah. just like... Yeah. <laughs> but you wouldn't put it past them. That would oh. just be a giant spade if it went near a dune. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a just, slant nose <laughs> ploughs it through, but yeah. Oh, well, look, Ollie, I'm, uh, I don't think I've ever been more jealous in my life. I've never been myself. It's on the bucket list. Um, and it sounds like, you know, if, if Audi's committing to the event, they're, they're going to be back next year in with a bigger and better shout of winning the race. The Dakar Classic's only getting bigger and better and more popular. Um, and so, yeah, when the invite comes in for the next one, <laughs> I'll have that. Yeah, but I think you need to take a lot of sun cream with your skin. <laughs> it's very hot I may there. never come back, but I'll enjoy myself <laughs> while I'm out there. Well, right. Ollie, 
Thank Great you. to speak, Ol. That's uh, that's cracking. And yeah, everyone else, I'd really recommend reading Ol's um, feature. It's a terrific insight and amazing photography from Mark Riccioni as well, who went along with you. And there will also be a video coming shortly to TopGear.com on the YouTube too. Absolutely. Cheers, boys. Cheers, Ol. All right then, Ro. Should we have a uh, should have a little izzy wizzy? Let's get quizzy. <laughs> if that's what you want to call it, I think. Well, let's look, lighten the mood slightly. I'll give it the real name. Uh, top Gear Top Nine. So, look, little recap on these. These are these lists um, that are drawn up by our uh, very own Stato, Ollie Q, Senior Road Test Editor. You'll find them in the mag every month. You'll find them on the website topgear.com virtually every week. The idea is we have three guesses each to name the things or the cars or the bits that are in his list. Does that make sense? Thank God it's not his shirt because that's a punchy lumberjack he's come dressed as today. So if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, you've got that. I think that's a couple more pods and we can have a top nine uh, top nine Ollie shirts. Today I'm happy to be sponsored by Sir Jackie Stewart and I'd just like (laughs) to say thank you very much for the shirt. (laughs) Right. What's the topic? So today we're going really nerdy. I'm thinking it's going to be a low-scoring round, gents. I'm looking for the top nine weirdest ways to change gear. There's a lot more ways to change gear than just a manual or an auto. Over the years, there's been some really innovative and interesting ways manufacturers have come up with to swap cogs. So You don't um, mean just changing gear with your foot. You mean like weird gearbox I mean, interfaces. Yeah, cars yeah. that have tried to reinvent how you change gear and usually fail catastrophically at it. Right. So, um, yeah, hit me with your first guess. What Jack, you, got, you going first? Well, uh, this is a tough one. I don't really know where to begin with this Shall one. Shall I kick it off? I'll kick yeah, it off because I've got a, a, an absolute slam dunker to begin. Uh, Citroen 2CV umbrella shift. I've got a Citroen on the list. It's oh. not that one. What? I know the one you mean where it came straight out of the dashboard. Yeah, it was the most bizarre shift ever. I, I, I was taught to do it once and forgot how to use it immediately. But, um, yeah. That's pull a it, good one off the bat. It. I'm still. I'm glad you went first. It's given me more time to think. Does that count or not? Is that on the list? No. Oh, we said we're not doing half points in these top no, nines. No, I no, went no. for the Citroen in my list, the Citroen DS, which people might remember had this kind of wand pre-selector behind the steering wheel, and you kind of had to guess where the gear was, and then when the hydraulic pressure built up, I think, then the car would shift gear. So it kind of happened with a bit of delay, like you're talking to someone in Australia. That was how the gears were selected. Um, Probably still faster than the gearbox in the Ventador, isn't it? Yeah, and less jerky as well. Very very smooth, very comfortable. Right, right. Ooh, burn. <laughs> open goal here for you. Open goal. Well, is it weird or not? It was weird when it first came along. The flappy paddle or dual clutch or PDK because traditionally, if you were just stirring the gears with a stick, that was a weird way to do it, wasn't it? Mm. It was, but I went I went weirder oh. for, for, the, for this list. So the flappy paddle isn't on here. Interesting. Which was the first... Road car to have a flappy paddle gearbox. F355? Was it, though? I believe it was offered in the Ferrari 348. Oh, was it? It's a very rare option. Uh. I don't know, write in if I'm wrong on that. I heard it was on that, and then the 355, you could get it from launch. Anyway. All right, let's keep moving. Well, low scoring round, as predicted. Um, right, Rove, that's your first guess. I'm looking <laughs> forward to oh, number two yeah. three. <laughs> um, all right, um, so... Porsche's PDK box, when they obviously first launched it, they had this bizarre system. So you had the push me, pull me little buttons on the wheel, which they eventually conceded oh. were rubbish. And then they gave in the 996. Yeah, yeah, it didn't make any sense. It's a great shout. It's the 997. Actually, that was the PDK first PDK 911. You're absolutely right. That's one of the first ones I went for. 
That was Porsche's idea that instead of having a paddle to shift down on the left and the paddle to change up on the right, you could do the same on a button. So I guess you could And it was shift. the same both sides, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, so it was like you could shift manually with one hand and then drink a coffee with the other hand, but it was totally unintuitive and a mess. And then Porsche really cheekily said, okay, you can have paddles, but we'll charge you extra for a steering wheel <laughs> very that's got, Porsche. That's got yeah, paddles Porsche. on it. And then they very quietly um, but one of the great, one of, one of a number of great Porsche U-turns where they actually listen to their customers and swallow their pride and change it, basically. Yeah, and totally. And now, ironically, if you want a used Porsche, it's great if you can find one because you can get money off by going, oh, I'm going to have to change the steering wheel. Ah, Good tip there. Right, Row. I need two. more time. Uh, this, <laughs> this, um, what about... Does a sequential box, like in, or in the the bi-posto, have that weird... Or, or banging it through? Does yes. that count? Is that a weird way to change? Is it a fun way to change I gear? selected the above 695 Bipostos Dog Ring H-Pattern gearbox. This was nuts. This was an open gate six-speed manual in effectively a hot Fiat 500, but with a dog ring shift, so you could flat shift it. It made a huge amount of noise. It stuck up out the interior floor like it was like you'd had a crash and the gearbox had basically been forced through the floor pan of the car. Um, and I've got the option price. I've just dug out here. Eight and a half thousand pounds. Bargain. To have a race gearbox in your Fiat 500. And Fantastic. You love weird a dog way ring, to change gear. Uh, love a dog ring? <laughs> yeah. My favourite kind of ring. Yeah. <laughs> um, Perfect. Family podcast. All right. I think it's 1-1 one, one because I should have got a point for 2CV but I didn't so I'm moving on to my third guess uh, I've got quite a clever one but I'm almost certain it's not going to be on your list so we'll talk about that in the pub afterwards uh, I'm going to go with a dog leg manual I suppose the one that I'm familiar with is Aston Martin uh, Aston Martin's dog leg manual a weird way to change gear, but it's been in so many cars over the years. I went really weird for this. Let me give you an example of the weirdness I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you about the Hearst. Don't, don't, don't give him free answers. Oh, he's not going to get this. My next answer was going to be the wind or something. I don't know how to <laughs> you guess. A CVT gearbox and you just, yeah. I don't know, guess? Yeah. That's not... A CVT isn't even a gearbox. It's what a CVT stands for. Well, it changes gear, variable transmission. To, yeah, it's basically yeah, an elastic band. Yeah, no, it is, yeah. But it's, it doesn't change gear. So we, I, 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 I have was, nothing. I, I have nothing left in the tank. for yeah. you. Yeah. Next yeah. week, we'll do, like, top nine cars painted green or something. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Aventador, there me, you go. You haven't even answered... I did dog leg manual. You think that's too normal? It's the most bizarre... I, I mean, it's lovely. There's lovely historic... Now, sort of... very esoteric, very weird. Yeah, but yeah. I was looking at things like the Hearst Lightning Rods. This was an American muscle car option where you could have one manual shifter to get you from first to second gear, then another one to get you from second to third. Because when you're drag racing, you want the fastest shifts possible. So they literally put So you just three... go bang, bang, bang. Yeah, there were three gear levers in the car. One for getting into park, reverse, neutral drive. One for going for first to second, one for going second to third. Now, that is a weird way to change quite gear. Like you, quite like that. Do a comeback, I think. Yeah. Do a comeback. All right, so that's 1-1. One, one. Um, sh- this is just so blooming hard. Should we just leave it there? As a, as well, a no, what else have you got on the list then? Go on, enlighten me. Well, for people who want to go and check this list out, on ontopia.com, leave some more ideas in the comments. There was the Mitsubishi Super Shift, which was f- uh, two four-speed gearboxes. So effectively, you had eight speeds, but packaged... Madly, what about a column <laughs> shift? It's usually popular in America, but we'd never get them in yeah. European cars. Oh, that is it's very satisfying. It's like oh, a slot it's machine. Very Hollywood, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When you drive, yeah, we go over in America. That feels to fact, to us. James James Lippman, retro the, the Buick Roadmaster. The Roadmaster is it? Is it? Mm-hmm. Got, yeah, that's got a lovely column shift. 
Yeah, absolutely. Those, the, the Ford Model T, which I think we need a whole podcast just to explain how the gearbox works. There's loads more. So yeah, check out that list if, um, if you're nerdier than these two gents. Hmm. Well, okay. Not a high-scoring right. round. I would say thanks, Ollie. But was there I'd... any score? Did we score anything? Well, it was an honourable draw, one all. Mm-hmm. Honourable. Better luck next time. Anyway, thank you, Ollie. Cheers, Ollie. Back to work. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's plenty, plenty of podcast-based fun for one day, I think. Um, we'll leave it there, but... Before we go, remember to check out TopGear.com, rolling car news, reviews, anything else we can find floating around on the internet. Yep, that was the second-hand superheroes issue. It was. So if you're in the market for a new car, it's hard to get a new car, so just go for the second-hand option because there's plenty more and you can. there's a story to tell with it. But also, so check out the latest issue of the magazine, but also there's plenty of fun stuff on TopGear.com, on the YouTube channel, and subscribe and follow to all our socials, our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the like. Hey, you could even buy a copy of the magazine. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be nice. That would Something be nice. to take home and keep. So, go and do that. Go and like and subscribe to all the other jazzy bits that we do. And um, we'll see you next time. Yeah, all the details in the description. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time.